Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash NFL. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls. And guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. I also like football season and everything that goes with it, Sam, but hmm. it's the off season. So we've got some off season content. How you doing, man? Doing good, Steve. How are you? Just mixed it up. Welcome in PFF NFL hmm. podcast. Doing great. Uh, we've got a great show today. An awesome show. I've learned from the best. You hype it up early. Okay. You know, pe- people buy in. I think it's a great show. We had some fantastic questions from our listeners. So we're going to fly through some of those questions, including an intriguing one about coaches. What makes coaches actually good? How, what's the, the sustainability of coaches? So essentially, you know, who are the best coaches in the NFL? We got some Michael Thomas discussion. You're going to have to fill me in on what is actually happening with Michael Thomas. I, I'm trying to step away from social media every now and again, and you're trying to tell me that there's a there's a deal. There's something going on with Michael Thomas right now. Yeah, uh, apparently there's actual debate as to how good he is. Um, he got into some kind of social media spat with Devontae Parker. Um, 
generally about how good he was. I mean, Michael Thomas is one of these people who, you know, he's a little bit like Richard Sherman in that he's only too happy to tell you how good he is um, yeah. and criticize anything that tells you he isn't good or whatever. So he's, you know, the architect of a lot of this stuff himself. Um, but, you know, I logged on a couple of times over the weekend and it was just like there's actual time being dedicated by a lot of people, including us, you know, PFF's account's been out there tweeting Michael Thomas stats, um, basically proving how good or otherwise he is. And then there's a group of people that do genuinely appear to think that he isn't actually that great a receiver. He's the product of Drew Brees, or he's a product of a million targets, or he's the product of, you know, Teddy an endless amount of, well, a product of an endless amount of these, you know, short of the sticks pass attempts and blah, blah, blah. You know, the same stuff that you always got with those, with Wes Welker, right? It's like Wes Welker is nothing. He's the product of a million three-yard receptions, like all that kind of stuff. So there is apparently a genuine debate as to whether Michael Thomas is actually a good receiver or just the beneficiary of an incredible environment in New Orleans. All right. Well, we'll, we'll get into depth on that. You want to go th- uh, a little bit later on or do you want to just get right into it? How do you want to structure no, let's, this Let's thing? knock that one out of the park straight away. Okay, well, let's do the Wes Welker comparison because I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, if you're judging a guy simply by total receptions, yes, mm-hmm. I think that you can you can overrate a guy because there's this concept of, hey, Wes Welker caught over 100 passes a year. That's incredible. But he only catches those passes because he does something with them. Michael Thomas does something with them. What did he have, 20 more first downs than any other receiver last year when you add up first downs plus touchdowns something like 20 above the next guy so it's not like like people have hated on Jarvis Landry in the past before and some other guys who do catch short passes and maybe don't do as much with them and I think that's fair like if dude's just catching 100 screens every year and averaging six yards a pop like that's a waste but Michael Thomas does something with them and your skill set the Wes Welker skill set earned him those ca- those catches because he was going to do something with them. The Michael Thomas skill set has earned himself, earned him those targets because he does something with them. He converts first downs, which are valuable, you know, as far as winning football games, Sam. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that PFF's database does is allow you to start slicing into the data set in any conceivable way you can think of, right? Start diving into all these various scenarios because all of these statistics – yeah, obviously, if you just look at numbers, like raw numbers, number of catches, number of yards, all those sort of things, he looks great. But everyone's sort of point against him is like, well, if you take away, you know, these things, if you take away these five things, he doesn't look that great, right? And so <laughs> one of the one thing is that's usually a pretty bad way of doing it. Like, it's right. generally indicative of trying to craft a narrative that isn't necessarily there. Um, it also depends on what you're trying to take away. If you're taking right. away something that's valuable, then that's stupid. If you're taking away something like, you know, velocity on a quarterback, yes. it's like, all right, who cares? It's also fair to say that, look, you need to dive deeper into numbers than so it's, it's I think it's a bad way of presenting it. Right. Not like if you take away these five things, he doesn't look that great. It's like, let's let's accept that this overall body of work does not tell the full story. And let's start trying to dive deeper into things that really matter. Right. Now, one of the, so one is that PFF system allows you to basically replicate all of these things that, Hey, if you divide up, if you take away all these five things, this is what he actually looks like. Right. And B, we have a better understanding of what the things are that you should be focusing on um, and dialing in on those instead. So, 
one of the things that's really important for a receiver is how they do against, you know, single coverage, man coverage. So you look at that, and this is, again, if you think of, you know, possession-style receivers, guys that might not have the best speed in the world, the the most incredible agility, those are the guys that typically struggle a little bit more when teams do get them matched up with single coverage. Michael Thomas, no. Michael Thomas, again, single coverage is still... I think arguably the best receiver in the NFL. So that thing doesn't wash. It's like he isn't just a product of constantly finding holes in zones, the way you could argue with some other receivers. So that's number one. Oh, I, I was waiting for a number two. I thought you had a whole number no, two. Well, I was going to. I'd, well, I have more, but I was going to kick it back to you then. Thank you. You want a whole number for that? Last year, he had 109 targets against what we considered single coverage now that could be straight man to man it could be a zone concept where somebody's going to man up within their zone you know match zone that type of thing 109 targets he was open on 75 percent of them that was number 12 out of 141 qualifiers so uh 91st percentile at just getting open on his single coverage targets overall separation he was open on 85 percent of his targets that also about 90th percentile in the league so he is awesome at all of that stuff and then as I was mentioning, you know, uh, he's good against zone. He's good at, you know, converting first downs. Like, all those things matter. This feels like you mentioned Richard Sherman. I think the comparison there is not just here's two guys who like to talk about how good they are. It's here's two guys who do some stuff really, really well. And people like to disparage, oh, that's too easy. That's this. That's that. I don't think I don't think people identify what's easy and not easy all that well when it comes to football. Because you hear this stuff yeah. with quarterbacks all the time, like, oh, that's a that the, the term system quarterback is, is thrown around far too often. Like if you have a guy who is legitimately just throwing screens and average, you know, averaging 10 yards per reception on screens over and over and over again, you could say, OK, that's a system quarterback or a guy that throws 12 times a game and wins and people think he's good. You'd say, well, it's the system. Um, but part of quarterbacking, as I've said before, is being good 600 times. Right. It's making six to seven hundred good decisions a year when you drop back to pass, right? And over time, some passes are short and some are down the field and some guy might throw a little bit shorter than the next guy. And yeah, you can identify pieces where, oh, this guy's a little lucky here, unlucky there, whatever it is. But people don't identify like, oh, he threw a shallow, that's easy. Like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, yes, but sometimes you have to throw it. Wide receiver, oh, it's easy because it's short stuff. Corner, oh, it's easy because it's zone. I don't think people are good at identifying identifying it or they just misuse what's considered easy in football yeah um i I think the saints are also a really unique offense in terms of trying to parse who gets credit right the the quarterback the receiver the offensive scheme all these kinds of things so you can look at it and say look drew Brees and teddy bridgewater as well to to be fair drew Brees is the, the most accurate quarterback in the NFL basically has been over pretty much any time span. Teddy Bridgewater is right up there as well in terms of accuracy. So on the one hand, Thomas has benefited from the most accurate quarterback play in the NFL since he's been in it. Um, on the other hand, Drew Brees has pretty precipitously fallen off in terms of depth of target. You know, he used to throw the ball down the field at an average rate. Now he doesn't. Now, the ball does not go down the field very often at all. Teddy Bridgewater's, you know, primary critique from hate from haters, detractors, guys who don't like Bridgewater is the guy just doesn't throw the ball down the field. He's not aggressive enough. Will not and, 
will not put it in the air. And those do that does help the accuracy numbers and the catchable uh, pass rate and all that stuff, sure. obviously. But the but the point being is that whilst he's being helped on one hand by the accuracy, he's potentially being harmed by the fact that his quarterback will not throw the ball deep. So, you know, one of the criticisms people throw at him as well, he isn't the vertical threat some of these other guys are. You look at Julio Jones, you look at, you know, Tyreek Hill, the best receivers in the NFL today are legitimate vertical threats. And, you know, uh, Mike or uh, Michael Thomas has, you know, half the number of targets that those guys have deep. Um, just not the same kind of threat at all. But he's been really efficient on those plays. Like 20 plus yard targets last year. He had eight of them. He caught seven of them. So like he has been doing his part. And, you know, only our, having our eight team, though is is pretty right. hilarious for but, all the targets that he had. But it's not like he's it's not like it, it's it, there's two things that it isn't right. Which Before we decide what it is. One, it's not like he's um, just not getting open ever. Right. When he goes deep, because our guy Timo Risk um, pulled out numbers that basically say in terms of um, routes that he ran deep, he has one of the hard, highest target rates of any receiver. So ahead of those guys like Julio Jones, Stephon Diggs, Tyreek Hill, as we think of as really efficient and good deep threats, in terms of routes that they run deep down the field, Thomas actually gets a target more often than those guys do, which suggests that he's open when he does that, right? So mm-hmm. it's not that he's he, that he's uh, like running these deep routes and is constantly blanket coverage, so they're never throwing him the ball. When he runs deep, he's open. It's just that he isn't getting those targets presumably because or he isn't getting those opportunities now you can then make up your mind whether you think that that's because he can't do that or if it's because the offense isn't asking him to or his quarterbacks don't want him to um the fact that he's caught seven of eight and has been a productive receiver in every other area um suggests that it's not some like an errant flaw in his game that he can do that well let's stack it up over the last three years because i think the bottom line is when it comes to receiver, like, yeah, would I want to if I'm drawing up a receiver, I'm drawing up Julio, not Michael Thomas. Right. Like I'm going to I want Julio Jones on my team because I know he's going to affect all three levels of the field and all that stuff. Right. But we've already we talked about on the one one show. Julio is like the guy. Right. He is the best wide receiver of the decade and his stat is yards per route. Right. That hmm. is the stat that says, OK, how efficient are you? Right. And if you are being fed empty targets, so to speak, and not doing anything with them, it's not going to help your yards per route number all that much. So bottom line, no matter how he gets the job done, Michael Thomas is getting it done. When it comes to yards per route, he is second only to Julio over the last three years, 2.64 yards per route. That includes that little stretch with Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback. And um, yeah, I think, you know, football's tough because you, you, to your point, you do have to unpack how much is breeze, how much is the dome, Sam, you know, it's easier to the, all the pass game stuff is the dome. How much is the play caller? And yeah, you know, Drew Brees and Sean, um, Teddy Bridgewater both had the highest percentage of open throws in the league last year. So I think you generally say there's a little bit, there's some good decision making in there. There's obviously some good scheming in there from Sean Payton and there's some good receiver play. Like it all kind of works together. But bottom line, Michael Thomas, number two in yards per route, like he's an elite receiver. So I mean, that's the bottom line in this whole thing, right? You've got Julio, you have Michael Thomas, you have DeAndre Hopkins, you have Antonio Brown when he was healthy and on the field. Like who else is in that top tier of wide receiver? Is the argument that he's not in that top tier because he's not as freaky as Julio or Calvin or Randy Moss? Like what is the argument against him? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> I think that's pretty much the argument. Um, let me give you some numbers. So you go back to the start of Michael Thomas's career. He has caught 29 of 48 deep targets. So that's passes that have gone 20-plus yards in the air. I've seen some yeah. people using 15-plus as a cutoff or whatever. 20-plus yards what in the, the air. That's what the NFL calls deep in their right. box score. So that's he's, like the default, yeah. He's caught 29 of 48 targets. He is the only one of these um, top wide receivers to have never dropped a deep target. Uh, Tyreek Hill has dropped one New Hopkins two, Stephon Diggs three, Julio seven over the same time span. Now those guys have a lot more targets, but the point is, in terms of efficiency, he's doing well. Like he has a grade that's really high on deep targets. It, to be fair, the grade is lower than those other guys, but I think some of that is is opportunity driven, right? But he's catching the majority of those deep targets. He's efficient when they're being sent his way. I mean. Like I say, I think this is a usage pattern thing, not a inherent flaw in Michael Thomas's game. Maybe he doesn't have the speed of some of these other guys. But I mean, I think New Hopkins is probably the best comp, right? Because nobody is making mm-hmm. this case for New Hopkins, right? Nobody is saying, well, he doesn't have the speed of Julio um, and the or Tyreek, so therefore he's worse. I think it's accepted that he's at the same kind of level, even though he's less physically freaky than those guys. Like... Those numbers stack up well. I mean, DeAndre Hopkins is catching a third of his deep targets. Now, he has three times more of them than Michael Thomas over the same period. But he's catching a third versus whatever it is, 60% that Thomas is catching. They are going for the same kind of uh, yardage. Uh, Thomas is making a lot more happen after the catch. And he's they're dropping, let's say the same, right? Because New Hopkins has dropped two, but he's got three times more targets. Thomas has yet to drop one. I mean, there's not much difference statistically on deep targets between Michael Thomas and New Hopkins, other than the fact that he doesn't get as many opportunities. I've been using the phrase like uber possession guy or high end possession guy, which once again, it's not like calling a guy a system quarterback. Like that's a, hey, here's a guy that has earned 150, 160, 170 targets and is going to be efficient with them. That's what I'm considering that and our guy eric eager used uh, chris carter a- as a cop for michael thomas like mm. here's this guy that's going to catch 100 passes a year maybe not as freaky on the sideline as chris carter but that's a very specific skill set that carter brought to the table and all he did was catch touchdowns yes carter um so maybe thomas isn't as freaky in the red zone either but as far as like here's this dude who's a 10 target a game type of guy that you, you know is gonna you know catch seven or eight of them and move the chains like that's Thomas that's DeAndre Hopkins that's a Chris Carter type the other thing to bear in mind is that the Saints have always been very um role specific with what they do with their receivers right so remember when Devery Henderson was the deep threat uh and then it became you know they've they've cycled through these guys so Ted Ginn has been the deep threat for this offense Michael Thomas has been the guy that operates in the slot and moves the chains those there's not a lot of crossover in terms of role uh, in those receivers within New Orleans offense. So if you look at Ted Ginn, like Ted Ginn has had almost double the number of deep pass attempts or deep targets that Michael Thomas has had. Like it's just hit the, the, those plays go to a different receiver in that offense. It's not to say that that guy can't do it. It's just that they're not going to ask him to. So we'll never know other than by looking at how efficient he is, the few, the free infrequent occasions they get sent his way. All right. Have we put a bow on this thing? Like well, Michael like the Thomas bottom line is, is, is of really course go, he's good. Is really Just good. look at him. Yeah. I don't know. Receiver. I, I, I've, I've said this before. Our grades are awesome. Premium stats, 2.0. You want our grades. 
Go check them out. I think they do an awesome job of telling you what has happened on the field. And then there's and then there's a few stats that are better than others. And I always go back to yards per route being one of our best stats. It's one of the most predictive stats. And it's one of those where like the we always say there's like there's noisy stuff in football, right? Like, oh, there's some dependency here. And then there's this thing and there's this factor. Uh, I think yards per route does a really good job of year over year saying, hey, look, here are the best receivers. When you list the top 10 yards per route, grade is great. Grade will get you in the ballpark, too. But yards per route really gets you in the ballpark. And when you see Michael Thomas at number two over the last three years, number one last year, he's doing something right. I was most impressed. I, I, I think the same concerns everybody had. Maybe I have, right? Like if, if Michael Thomas went to the Jaguars or a different team or, you know, a team with an uneven quarterback situation, would he be a superstar right now? I don't know. Maybe not. But I, I became more of a believer when he did continue that success with Teddy Bridgewater and Bridgewater didn't play great during that time. Like he was okay. He started slow. He figured it out late. He was just okay during his time as the Saints Saints uh, starter last year. Um, we've seen Antonio Brown kind of disappear. Now, granted that was Landry Jones versus big Ben. Like there's, there's drop off there, but I was impressed when he just, you know, kept it going with Teddy last year. That was what really convinced me. I think and answered all these questions that we're asking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are very few quarterback-proof receivers in in the NFL. I, in fact, yeah. you know, we've seen that New Hopkins is one. Um, I don't know that there are others. I mean, Antonio Brown dropping off that severely shows that if the quarterback play is bad, is bad enough, even the best receivers in the last decade are going to struggle because they need the ball to at least be within the certain area. Like, Hopkins, I think, is better equipped to deal with that than others because he doesn't win with separation anyway. So he's used to it, even with the good quarterback play. But, you know, guys like Julio Jones would probably struggle a lot more if his quarterback play fell off. So I don't I don't know that that's a great reason for dinging a guy anyway is, hey, he's been he's got a decent situation. What if he had to make do with Landry Jones? It's like, oh, yeah, like pretty much any receiver having to make do with Landry Jones is going to suck because Landry Jones is terrible. Like, that's not a good reason to ding him. If you're going to use anything, use the dome like I always do. So, Can I, all right. Anyway, let me, let's before get we, before we get into yeah. the questions. Let me hit you with one more that's that's flying around just to get your take on it. So Dak Prescott and the Cowboys are still negotiating right for a long term yep. deal. Cowboys are apparently offering the monster thirty five million dollar a year deal. He is holding out and essentially. Um, so he uh, the report is that he wants forty five million in the last year of the deal, but basically he appears to be they keep up in their their offer and he keeps holding out for more money. I this feels to me like he has misjudged the timing on this. Like if this was a few years ago, you know, back when Andrew Luck was coming up for his first big new contract, at that point quarterbacks felt like they had basically all the leverage in the world because if you didn't have one, you were screwed. Now, it's sort of swung back where this offseason there were more quarterbacks than jobs. And the, and unless you're, you know, like if you're a Patrick Mahomes, all bets are off, right? Because you're so good, you transcend everything. But if you're not a Patrick Mahomes and you're one of these sort of top 10 guys, I think it's easier than it's been for a long, long time to go from that guy to an Andy Dalton, say, <laughs> as, you know, a topical guy that happens yeah. to be sitting there already. And not see a significant drop off. Like, has he misjudged ha how much leverage he has in this negotiation? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I also, I also think he's calling 
the Cowboys bluff a little bit. He's in a situation where, wait, I saw the running back get paid before me. I saw the receiver get paid before me. I'm supposed to be the guy. I mean, I think I think it's a tricky situation. Now, this is also reported by Chris Sims saying that Dak wants 45 million in the fifth year of his contract. You know, who knows how valid that is? There's a lot of reports that Dak wanted 40 million last year, and I don't know that that was all true either. Um, I, I think ultimately they get it done. I don't know. I always feel like the general. I always trend. feel like the stuff that gets out there is always a little bit on you know polar ends of the extremes, and the truth is more in the middle. So I think when you when you hear what Jerry says and you hear what Dak says, I think the truth is more in the middle, which is like they're going to figure it out and get it done, and maybe Dak's not holding out for as much as people think. The general trend does appear to be though that Dallas keeps upping their offer, and so far, <laughs> so far he hasn't signed it right. So. At the very minimum, you have to assume that he still wants more than they're putting on the table. Um, it just like so we've we've had this back and forth about Dak Prescott for ages, and last season sort of showed well, hey, he can be better than he'd been the previous couple of years. You know, if you want to do this, you should pay him. But at some point, he isn't that good. Like it, his his career is almost like an exercise in showing how much supporting cast matters to a quarterback of this caliber, right? It's like if you make the thing around him as good as humanly possible, he can be borderline top five quarterback. If you don't, he's like top 20, top 15, at which point there's a limit. Like that alone puts a cap on how far you can push the money because you need to ascend, You need to keep the, the supporting cast around him as good as humanly possible. Otherwise, we've already seen what happens. Yeah, it's it is tricky, right? I, I, I agree with you because we've talked about it so much about what the next quarterback looks like in, in today's NFL. Um, I, I do think it will talk about like how many elite quarterbacks there are in a little bit and all that stuff. Dak's not that guy like he's not top eight, top ten. But as you said, he's shown that he could put up that type of right. production. To me, that's a comfort level for Dallas to kind of like move forward with that. Right. Um I would if I was in that situation, I'd be like, you know, I, I maybe let's just put a number on it. Dak's the 11th best quarterback in the NFL. What could I do if I had number 15? Would the drop off be like, I don't know if I want to take that chance or take that risk. And you kind of have to pay for that. So um, it's always a tricky situation because once you're in, you know, eight through 20, those quarterbacks, is there a drop off? Maybe. But if you're stuck with quarterback 28, then there's trouble, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's part of like what you're paying for is the comfort level of having a top 10, top 15 guy, whatever that cutoff is. This is not the NFL that it was where when you had an Alex Smith, you had to give him a $100 million contract because if you didn't, the right. prospect of quarterback hell outside beyond an Alex Smith was so was so terrifying that you just needed to lock something up. This is yep. not that NFL anymore. Like if you don't get a Dak Prescott and he walks out the door, like I said, you already have an Andy Dalton sitting on the bench and Andy Dalton is probably better than Alex Smith was back when he got a hundred million dollar contract. Like this is not quarterbacks do not have the leverage that they used to. Like when Andrew Lux, you just contract, called Dak Alex Smith. No. Is that what you said? Not even slightly. Oh, I thought you said he's right. At, you said he's right at that level, right? I, I no. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I so misheard. Yeah. What the hell? Anyway, when Andrew Luck's contract was coming up, I said that like he had 
this was around the sort of Alex Smith $100 million contract time or a bit after that. Like, he had the kind of leverage where he could... I said that he should have gone in there and basically demanded a 100% guaranteed contract the way Kirk Cousins eventually did, right? Because he had all the leverage in the world because the prospect of quarterback hell was still terrifying. Now it isn't. Like, we've got Cam Newton still out in the street. We've got Jameis Winston signing for like a buck 57 just to get a job. Andy Dalton has, has moved over to be a backup. Like, viable starting NFL quarterbacks are struggling to find jobs the prospect, like the chances that you're going to be left with a Brody Croyle is just no longer there. You're not, you're not in that world anymore. So you have more, you have more leverage to fight back and say, look, I'm, there's a number we're going to go to. And if you want more than that, you're not signing here. Well, then there's the, then there's the other part of when you do go. So when you do have the top end number, it changes all the time, right? Because Derek Carr signed, what looked like a massive deal at the time. Andy Dalton, you mentioned his name. He looked like he signed a massive deal at the time because these things change so quickly. Like Mahomes is coming up soon. He will change the whole game. Of course, Dak's not going to make Mahomes money. Um, but, you know, these Lamar is going to have to get paid. Like we're Lamar, Dak could sign the, the richest quarterback contract and then it becomes number eight three years from now. Right. Yeah. So when do you anticipate all right, we're, we're overpaying now for this moment in 2020. However, by 2022, it's like, all right, not a big deal. That's where we want. That's where Dak should be. You I know, that's you always to. been the tricky part of the quarterback market. I think you have to. I mean, I think teams do this anyway, but I think you need to look at it in percentage of salary cap terms, right? It's like, forget what the dollar figure is. They have a rough, I mean, they know what the salary cap is now, and they have a rough idea of what it's going to scale up to over the course of a contract. So you basically say, look, this is the amount, this is the percentage of our salary cap we are willing to dedicate to your contract, and it will be the same every single year. So you will earn more money in year three, in year five, than you are in, in year one, but we're not moving above this percentage in salary cap terms. But like the bottom line is, if he wants more than that, they should walk away, because as good as he can be in this offense, they they need to be able to, they need to maintain the level of supporting cast around him. Otherwise he's already shown he's not capable of elevating everything else around him to the point where it transcends that talent differential. He's not a Patrick Mahomes. So does that lead us into our, one of those questions, Sam? Sure. Who can actually, you know, who are the guys that can actually do that? You know, what are the examples? Where was that, uh, that question? Good. Yeah. Good, um, good. So, Basically, the question was, who are the transcendent quarterbacks in the NFL? Guys that you can put in a crappy situation and they still are amazing. Um, because honestly, I, I don't know if there's more than one right now. How many do you think there are? I don't. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, there's far fewer now that Brady and Breeze are at the tail end. Uh, Peyton's gone and Rodgers is um, he's come back down to earth. I don't know if there is anybody. And also crappy situation is extreme because even in crappy situations like those guys, I don't know if we've ever seen Peyton in like a terrible situation. I don't think we've ever seen Rogers in a terrible mm. situation. And I think we've seen Brady in a terrible situation, maybe three times in his career. And two of them were like two. So 2013. And then last year, things like statistically didn't look good. Um, so as far as like terrible situations, I, I don't think Rogers has ever been in, a terrible situation when he's been at his peak. And I don't think Peyton has either. Um, Breeze. I don't think he has. He's always been 
paired with Peyton and he, yeah. he might not have had name talent, but he's had, you know, good players to throw to, I'd say, um, and offensive line. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of quarterbacks that you could put in average situations and they would elevate everybody. Um, yeah, probably the top 10 guys, I think, would make a notable immediate elevation to the talent level around them if that talent level was was decent or average or whatever. In terms of bad, I, it, there, I think Patrick Mahomes is the only situation-proof quarterback in the NFL right now. If you transpose him into any offense, he would immediately transform that unit and make them look way better than they looked before. But the counterpoint to that is we also have seen him go into one of the best situations, if not the best yeah. situation in the NFL. So it's not like I always have to kind of like bring this up. It's not like he's an absolute slam dunk, right? If the chiefs don't play their cards right in the coming years, as far as Tyree kill and Travis Kelsey and Andy Reed slash play caller, you know, Eric B like that whole situation. Those are the, the key points are Andy Reed, Eric B Tyree kill and Travis Kelsey, right? If you lose one, two, three of those, I don't know for sure that Patrick Mahomes is definitely top to MVP candidate every single year. I don't know it for sure. I'm not saying that I think he will be, but I'm not saying that like it doesn't negatively impact him, but I'm saying that Mahomes Mahomes makes everybody better regardless of the situation around him. Like if you take him from Andy Reid's, you take him from the current situation, which is one top top three in the NFL and put him in one that's bottom three. Of course, it's going to negatively impact his numbers. Like he's not going to throw for 5,000 yards, 50 touchdowns, and be an MVP candidate, maybe. Um, but he's still going to like, <laughs> he's still going to make what is a bottom three situation look like a middle of the pack one, is, what, is my point. So from that yeah, perspective, he's, he's situation proof. But I don't know, I don't think any other quarterback is right now. Brady showed last year he isn't anymore. Breeze, I don't think is. Um, Lamar Jackson, I don't think is, because I think too much rests on. Uh, the system that's built around his skill set. And I think if you don't build a similar one, he's not going to look like the same player. He'll still, he'll still do a lot because, you know, he'll be able to make plays with his legs. He'll be able to do some things, but I don't think he's going to look near the same player he looks now. And like, who else would even be in the conversation? Sean Watson. I don't think so. Maybe. I mean, he, I don't I, think honestly, he, he might be the cl- the next closest one in terms of guy, somebody that could do it. Russell Wilson, you know I, would, I guess, you could make a case for. Yeah, I think I think Wilson, you could make a case for. But you know, to our point last on the last show, like yeah, we're the last two years. That's what we've seen from Wilson. He's always he's always been in that top eight. In the last two years, he's been top three. Right. That's a that's a that's a move up for Wilson, um, and that has coincided with say Brady taking a step back and breeze getting older and Rogers taking a step back. That's, that's, that's taking guys stepping aside for him to kind of be a part of that next tier. Um, I have some interesting numbers along those lines using wins above replacement or war and trying to quantify just how important all these position groups are. Um, so if you go season by season, so I, I added up all the war by position So all the wins above replacement. So quarterbacks in a given season make up about 30 to 32 percent of the wins in the NFL. Okay, so so your quarterback is kind of getting you that baseline like one third. Okay, Um, 
receiver is next closest, and that's at about 15% of the wins above replacement that are just distributed by our algorithm across the NFL, um, which I find which I found really interesting. And then if you add up the skill position players, so you add up running back and you add in tight end, it's not exactly one-to-one, but it's close. Like it's quarterback, obviously the the most important. It's th- you know the 30, 32%. But skill positions are like 25, 26. There's some years it gets up to 30. So does that match what you might think intuitively, Sam? So in other words, the quarterback's one guy, right? And he can get you so far. But then if you add up your three wide receivers, your tight end, your two running backs, or whoever else contributes there, that also pretty much just about equals the quarterback. Does that properly describe, say, like those Andy Dalton 2015 seasons where everything was great? And you got to that special spot of high production in the past game. Same thing as Dak last year. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think so. I thought that was interesting when I found that. Uh, the other interesting thing is offensive line. We talk about creep back toward average. This is it, that accounts for six to eight percent, essentially, of wins above replacement across the NFL. D line is in a similar spot, six, seven, eight percent. And then the secondary is up in the 20s. Um, so secondary in skill positions. So if you're building a team and you're just looking at five groups of positions, quarterback, your, all your skill, all your pass catchers, your O line, your D line and your secondary, it's quarterback clearly first skill positions and secondary are second. And then there's a huge drop off to O line and D line, which is very much the opposite of how a lot of NFL teams try to build. I thought that was interesting actually seeing those numbers though. It is. Um, so, by the way, so that question, the quarterback question, came from Twitter, uh, from at Fail for Fields. Um, the we're gonna we've pulled a lot of questions from the uh, comment section of our iTunes reviews as well, because we pulled a bunch of them for this one. We're gonna draw one name out of the hat and give them the free PFF subscription. So remember, if you want a free PFF subscription. You can ask us a question um, on the in our iTunes reviews. Leave a handle, leave some way of us getting hold of you, um, and we will draw. We'll give one away per week. Like if we read four questions out, we're not giving four out. Is the point I'm making? That's fair. All right. So good so. question. Let's let's fly through the rest of them, Sam. Let's give some good answers, thoughtful right. answers. What do you got? Which one do you want to take first? I'll just go in the order that we have here. Sam, this one's addressed to you. Sam mm. said. You don't develop quarterbacks in parallel. It's sequential. And he illustrated Josh Rosen being gone as soon as the Cardinals drafted uh, Kyler Murray. My question is about the Washington Redskins taking RG3 in the first and then taking Cousins. It was at, he said the fifth. It was actually the fourth round. Please give your analysis of that and address your declaration. That's a hard boots snowboarder that sent right. that, right? Is that right? Uh, no, yes. no. Mark tr- Mark's. Yeah, don't oh, we read have, that's his email. Don't address. read his email. Don't read his email out. Don't read his um, email. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think they did essentially do that. I don't think they developed two quarterbacks. And I don't think they were developing two quarterbacks. I think they took a quarterback and then took another random shot later on as a backup. And they got lucky because the quarterback they were trying to develop, RG3, busted his knee and was never the same guy again. And then the guy that they had as a backup afterthought actually turned out to be, you know, arguably be a better quarterback long term. So I think they essentially got lucky. I don't think they were trying to develop two quarterbacks in parallel. I think they took a starter and then later on they took his backup 
and that's an entirely different thing. Like that's that's the equivalent to having a quarterback already and then drafting a mid round flyer to be his backup. Like it's not you're not you know what I mean. There's a difference between the Packers drafting Jordan Love in the first round, putting Aaron Rodgers on notice that his job is now on the hot seat, and then taking a quarterback in the fourth round to be their back to be Rodgers' backup. Yeah, that's fair. I look at it slightly differently. I think first off, I think it confirms that strategy of continuing to draft quarterbacks because you don't know and um the payoff of of a kirk cousins fourth round selection is is incredible um the points though that i think our reader is also making is it's not like hey we sat there and we put rg3 on notice by drafting a quarterback immediately what you did and you didn't go and say hey, we're going to split the reps 50 50 but i think the point is somehow you developed a quarterback you, somehow you developed a second quarterback while having a first quarterback and that that as a strategy can work and having QBA and QBB, you know, who cares who who becomes the guy, but one of them becomes the guy. And that's extremely valuable. To, like that can happen and exist. Maybe not. It didn't happen in the form that you're condemning, but it can happen. You can have two guys and one of them develops and becomes better. Even then taking Cousins, though, in the fourth in the same draft caused them like an amount, like a decent degree of crap from people saying, like, you're undermining your quarterback already, blah, blah, Who cares? Here's well, the one that, thing I didn't thing, like though, about the it. The fourth it, round caused that, right? If you take a guy in this, if you take two quarterbacks in the first, you like increase that by a factor of 50 and it's all you're spending your time doing. Man, you're so touchy for a guy that's as... Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. You're very touchy feely when it comes to the quarterback stuff. Diva. You're you're not a diva in anything in life except, you know, you're very touchy feely and diva like when it comes I'm to on taking board care of your with the idea. I'm on board with the idea that distractions are not helpful and this is the mother of all distractions. Here's from a business here's the other angle I want to take. From a business standpoint, I'm treating my quarterbacks like assets. They're human beings. I'd get to know them. And I'd, I'd, I'd take care of them and all that stuff. But from a business standpoint, as far as assets go, Josh Rosen was an asset. He was one year removed from being a first round pick. And even if his stock fell a round, he was still worth a second round pick, which is an asset to your football team. And that's, and that's why you trade him, right? It's not it, because you sit there and weigh it and say, if we give up the first rounder that we gave for Rosen, the, fir- the, the first rounder that we gave up for Kyler, and then we get a second rounder back like that's good business to go get Kyler, right? It's adding all that up and considering Rosen an asset, um, which is different from saying, well, we have Rosen, we have Kyler, like let's let him fight to the death. Like Rosen still had value and getting that second rounder back in return, I think, was was the right play there. That's different from saying, well, we, there's no way we, these guys could coexist, right? I yeah, but different. I think the fact that you could only get a second rounder for him shows how much of an impact the other thing has. Yeah, it also goes back to what we talked about earlier, though. Like, it's not tough to find Josh Rosen-level quarterbacks in today's NFL. Five, eight, ten years ago, maybe he's the 20th best quarterback in the NFL. Like, Charlie Whitehor- Whitehurst played significant football, right? Like, that. There's we're in a different time in the NFL. Um, What is this now? At, well, okay, this is... Okay, this is a good question. Uh, at Scotty516, that's not his email, right? Uh, at work... Not. Wherever he works, they've been kicking around this hypothetical. If the NFL had a Madden-style fantasy draft, how many quarterbacks would go before the first non-quarterback, and who would the first non-quarterback be? It's a great question. It is. 
Um, do you want to do you want to take a stab at that? It's I mean twenty five minimum. How many you want to go for? How many do I think should go, or what do I think the NFL would do? Should. Oh, should it's definitely twenty twenty five. It's definitely yeah. in that range, right? There's twenty five, and and then you start playing a little game theory. It's like if 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 QB twenty five is like. Sam Darnold or Marcus Mariota, you start to play game theory. It's like, well, what if I took Julio Jones here and then got Sam Darnold in round two, right? Like you start to figure out if the run is over. Um, but as far as like, hey, I need to start my team. Mm. Yeah, 20 to 25 guys need to come off the board at quarterback. So did that also answer your it's the second part of your question, who the first non-quarterback should be? Yeah, I think so. And look, f- look, football is a game where the the thing i just read right the quarterback and skill position are here and here like a little difference between the one quarterback and say six skill position players so does julio jones move the needle as much as a quarterback not even close as much as a quarterback but he helps move the needle into that skill position uh area that gives you this baseline of getting that up to a, a certain level so i think a guy like a julio would make a, a ton of sense as the first non-quarterback there, even though like a lot of people, ah, oh, the team with the best receiver doesn't win Super Bowl is a blah, blah, blah. Like that's always the, because they just can't make that big of an impact, but they still make the biggest impact among the non-quarterbacks. Right. So the analytics would essentially say that you either take a Julio Jones or a Stefan Gilmore, essentially the best receiver or the best defensive back. And because yep. those are the guys that will make the most difference to you winning a game, to above a random guy for you actually making an impact. I would go a different route, though, because, look, I think if you're the guy that essentially gets your pick of any player available, you know, other than the quarterbacks, if you get to choose the best player effectively in all of the NFL, I want Aaron Donald because I think he is so much better than anybody else at his position it's like I'm willing to take that upgrade and then try and find the closest I can get to Julio Jones or the closest I can get to a Stefan Gilmore later on, you know, whether it's the second mm. round or the third round or whatever. But there is no other, there's nothing else in the sphere of Aaron Donald in terms of how good he is, how productive he is. He is so far and above better than anybody else that tries to do what he does that I think if you have an opportunity to take that, even if the thing that he does makes less of an impact in your ability to win games, I think you have to take that swing and then try and try and get as close to the other guys as you can later on. Not crazy. I mean, yeah, the difference between him and the next interior D lineman, plus the consistency factor, that's part of what makes Julio special too, I think is the consistency factor. Yeah. Right. We talked about yards per route run. Okay, Julio's number one every single year. It's his thing. Aaron Donald, top guy. Every that that level of consistency is you know, and they're still in their prime, um, so that makes sense. By the way, could you imagine, as much as we are critical of NFL draft picks, which is an inexact science and projection and all that stuff, if we had the NFL do this, how like, and they know what they're getting from these players, and there's still going to be somebody at like three overall that's like, give me Aaron Donald. I like, said that. I don't care if Lamar's right. on the. Like, like I think they would be some guys that would take Donald at three and I said Khalil that a while ago, but I, I would be yeah. fascinated just to see the lists that NFL teams would do this in. Like yeah. even if even like even if we didn't even if we just kept it private, I would just be amazingly interested to see 
how all the 32 NFL GMs would actually do this because like we take it as read that now, you know, all the data says a quarterback is paramount and it should, you should be like 20 deep, 15 without argument before you even think about taking the best all non quarterback play. How high do you think an NFL team would do that though? I think it's way so, higher than that. <laughs> so name, name QB 15. Who's QB 15? I mean, it's, uh, well, that's one of the questions, like, right? Stafford, um, Stafford's in the top 10 ish, top 12. Like Cam Newton's been the 15th best quarterback, like whoever, whoever QB 15 is right. Imagine an NFL evaluator saying they're going to sit there and say, Aaron Donald, find the flaw in his game. Not one Julio Jones flaw in his game. Not one QB 15 has like 10 flaws in his game, but he's still way more important than the flawless Aaron Donald Julio Jones, whoever, Richard Sherman, Darrell Rivas, he's still way more important for your franchise. But in the eval process, it's just unbalanced, right? Your perfect player does not make the same impact as QB 15 or QB 20. And if you have QB 30, like you're screwed. (laughs) If you go from QB number 15 to QB 30, like you have no shot in the NFL. But if you go from Aaron Donald to defensive tackle 15 like you'll be fine as great as Aaron Donald is it would be fascinating to see all that you you know who the player like Kirk Cousins is the guy where it would start so you you know you'd take off the yeah you take off the Russell Wilson's the the Patrick Mahomes's and then Kirk Cousins would be the clear next best quarterback sitting on the board and an NFL GM would just look at that and go I'm not passing on an Aaron Donald or Julio Jones for Kirk Cousins yeah I don't even pass though, on a nine. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Even though it like from a from a sort of what will help you win a game standpoint, it's not even close. Right. Because you could sit there. It's, it's like when you write up scouting reports and it's like this guy's really good. But for some reason, I just wrote up 15 negatives, but you still know he's good. But it's like this thing. I don't like this. And you nitpick that. And I don't like his home life. I heard, Yeah. I heard some interesting stuff about why people passed on cousins a couple of weeks uh, last week why they passed on him in college. That's off air stuff though. Hmm. Anyway, what a crazy bad tease there. Um, anyway, <laughs> fascinating stuff. I think, I think the NFL would be, uh, I think a lot of them would screw it up. Here, here's the other thing too. Remember I, I said last week about what we don't know if like the Seahawks, like what do the Seahawks think happened the last two years? Do they think hmm. they didn't have the, they overpaid Russell Wilson or Russell Wilson carried them. Right? So like Bill Belichick, do you think at a macro level, he looks at the last 20 years and he's like, yeah, Tom Brady's great. He's the best of all time. Like I, I said that in writing and I believe it. But at a macro level, he looks at it. He's like, I took this sixth round, somewhat unknown quarterback who could barely see the field at Michigan and turned him into the greatest quarterback yeah. of all time. Therefore, like if I'm like, if I'm if me, Bill Belichick is doing this draft. Like, I'm not going to take a quarterback. It'd be like a fantasy draft. Like, you wait for your quarterbacks until round 10. Like, if Belichick's like, just give me anybody, I did it with Brady. Or if he acknowledges over time, it's like, hey, I I fostered this environment that helped Brady to get there. But, boy, like, he got there to a special place that, like, Matt Castle would never get there. You know, Jacoby Brissett, even if you gave them 10 years, they're not going to get to Brady's level. Um, I wonder what Belichick thinks about that. Well, that whole – like, this whole concept is a really interesting one because – it's it's not just that, you know, that 
people can think about it the wrong way. It's that this sort of look, looking back at things generally and trying to analyze it is an imperfect science. And there's several different ways of interpreting almost all of these things, right? So there's, there's a few different ways of analyzing the same, the same past record of what happened and deciding what that tells you going forward. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a spectrum of answers you can come to or conclusions you can reach that are all correct, um, or at least are not provably wrong right from the outset. Then there's a few more conclusions you can reach using the same data set that are wrong, right? So you have this whole spectrum of stuff where everybody's looking at the same things and coming to different conclusions as to what that is telling you to do going forward. And a bunch of people are right, even if they're looking in different different ways. And then there's a bunch of people over here who are looking at it and coming to just some idiotic conclusion being led astray completely. And all of these things can be happening at exactly the same time, which is why, you know, was why you have teams doing something that appears crazy because they're just coming to a different conclusion than everybody else from looking at the same stuff. And honestly, that's part of the reason why... It- I, I struggled with this for a while. People are like, hey, you're PFF. You guys have the data, like have have the same opinion, everybody at PFF. And we do for a lot of a lot of times. But if you listen to us and you listen to forecast and you listen to two for one drafts and other analysis and other written analysis, like we're not always on the same page about everything. It's not a robotic like this is the best player in the NFL. Next, this is the second best player. Like that's not how this works. It's we're all dealing with the same data, but we either interpret it differently, would apply it differently or whatever it is, right? And that's where the NFL is. So when people talk about like the analytics movement, like the analytics movement, all 32 teams are using numbers. They're just at varying levels of how they use it, what they're using. And they're certainly, you know, if they're using their hand stopwatch over the timed one to justify a pick, then they're using data, but perhaps not in the perfect way. Well, here's it. And I understand understand why they do the hand stuff. The time thing's off every now and again, but still. It's not even that it's off. It's that you rely on you rely on somebody else starting it, right? The the laser at the end yeah. is inarguable, it, it, perfectly accurate, and can't be screwed with. But the time differs because somebody has to start it on the guy's first movement. And if you have a peculiar way of determining what first movement is, like if you don't care when his arm moves, you're only going when his head comes, or whatever it is, right? If you have your own specific way of doing that. You're actually right to do that. My problem with that is you just sound like an idiot when you put that out into the public <laughs> sphere. Right. It's not even that your methodology is wrong. It's that saying it out loud in front of people makes you look like a moron. And if you don't understand that, you probably shouldn't be talking. Um, yeah, so I, I, that generally, the data doesn't, it's, one of the things that makes football such a compelling game is that it is so complicated. Like, it's as simple as you want to make it, right? It's blocking and tackling the end. Alternatively, it's as complex as you can possibly imagine a game being. Um, and therefore, there are no like necessarily easy right answers, even if you all have the same data set. You can come to different conclusions as to what that is saying. And, you know, the, the coverage thing, the Richard Sherman versus Darrell Rivas fight, right? You get two really good all-time great cornerbacks, even different teams have different interpretations as to how you should use that and which right. what is actually better for winning games. Should you take a number one, put him on a number one receiver and track that guy all over the field because that's the best way of utilizing that guy? Or should you say, no, he stays on the right side. We can forget about that side of the field and everything else rolls away from him. Those are two like almost diametrically opposed ways of dealing with exactly the same uh, concept. And I don't think either of them is wrong. 
Um, so everything is open to that level of interpretation. I think that's what makes football and analysis on football so it, interesting. It is what makes football so awesome because if you talked to if you got Rex Ryan in a room, you got like Lovey Smith in a room, you got like all these defensive coaches, they all they all took these different paths. Like Rex was like, Oh, I learned from my dad. We blitz like crazy. And Lovey's like, No, cover two for life. Like that's what I run. You know, like they all came from different places and it shaped who they are and what they decide to do. I don't know why I chose those two coaches. They were the first to come to mind that were I just love the idea different. that somebody was out there yelling cover two for life. Cover two for life. That's what I do. Like that's like the interview process. Hey, what are you gonna do at defense? <sighs> cover two for life. All right, but at their press conference, they're going to sound exactly the same. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to dictate the action. We're we're not going to react. We're gonna we're gonna be you know whatever. That's what they do. All right, good question coming up here. NFL coach elasticity. Mm. Uh, incredible podcast. Anytime you guys start with incredible podcast, I'm more likely to choose the question. Right, Sam? Um, how do you explain the elasticity of the perceived ability? of NFL head coaches. For example, one year, Sean McVay is the future of the NFL and is being worshipped by everyone. And the following year, he is a running joke. I don't know if he's a running joke, but um, he has taken a step back in circles. Um, who are your top three to five coaches? And is there really any way to grade out coaching ability? How do you explain the elasticity of their perception? Is it valid? Um, I have a thought. What are your thoughts? Well, my first thought is that this is a perception problem more than anything else. Um, and one of the things is you have to be careful about assigning perception to everybody. Like I had a guy in my mentions earlier <clears throat> who was like, you know, I'm with you guys on Josh Allen, but wow, have you guys lost the perception battle? Because anytime anybody like Chris Mortensen gets into PFF's mentions and starts bitching about our take on Josh Allen, like it's it's a, like 100% support for Mortensen, very little support for us, right? Like, well, okay, fine. So the percep the general perception of Josh Allen's ability is higher than PFF's perception of it right now. And that's not to say that PFF thinks he sucks. It's simply to say that PFF thinks he's worse than most people do. But the bottom line is not, like, that doesn't matter, right? It's like, okay, most people think he's better, but is he actually better? And that will be borne out over a longer period of time. Most people thought Mitchell Trubisky was better than we thought he was. And then a year later, it's like, oh, uh, it turns out he isn't. Um, and that's happened, you know, many, many times down the line, right? So the perception thing is its own discussion point. It's like, why are certain things perceived better than everything else? And is that even right? So Josh Allen is like that. The Sean McVay thing is a bit like that, right? It was like, wow, this is amazing. And even towards the end of that year, I mean, my whole shtick that offseason was this is a big offseason for not just McVay, but that entire coaching tree because – it started to look like everyone had that system figured out by the end of the year. And if they don't evolve, it becomes, you know, another offense that we've seen succeed really quickly and then fade away when they didn't evolve. So I yeah, think that's, that's a perception thing that everybody perceived Sean McVay as this absolute genius. Everyone that was hired in the offseason, it was everybody who'd ever met him, shaking his hand, had a cup of coffee <laughs> with him, whatever. But at the same time, we at PFF were saying – you know, this is like they need they've got some work to do this offseason. I think your point, though, is is my point, which is, first off, don't make these declarations too early. And I don't think we can define greatness until you see these guys in different situations and, and in situations where they've had to adjust and do things differently. So, yeah, I'm guilty as well. I think there was a point where here's a part of Sean McVay, too. And this is where perception 
comes from, right? The Rams, it, it's 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 kind of like when you put the backup quarterback in, right? So like we all agree Teddy Bridgewater is one of the better backup quarterbacks in the NFL. Right now he's a starter. If the Saints had who's the worst backup if who would who would be the worst backup quarterback in his, if they had Tyler Palco as his backup, right? Or let's just let's use Peyton Manning, okay? Peyton Manning misses the 2011 season. His replacements are Curtis Painter and Dan Orlovsky, okay? Two guys who are at the bottom end of the backup quarterback spectrum at the time. And they get out there and they are a disaster. And then Andrew Luck comes in in 2012 and people are like, well, he went from a two-win team to a eight, nine-win team, whatever they were. It's like Andrew Luck is incredible. It's like, no, he's the baseline that they started with is ridiculous. And the when people were saying people were jokingly saying Peyton's the MVP of the 2011 season. He hasn't mm-hmm. taken a snap because look at where the Colts fell. It's because the drop off to his backup was just ridiculous. Now, if you put a Teddy Bridgewater in there, maybe the Colts win six games. And like, does your perception of Peyton Manning change because they won six games instead of two? It shouldn't because your perception's being built upon the starting point, right? So McVay benefited from some of that. The Rams were at such a low the tail Jeff Fisher had had some success early in his career, but he became just like the pinnacle of mediocre coaches. And then they hit this rock bottom spot. Jared Goff looked like a disaster. Todd Gurley was a disaster, all this stuff. And McVay steps in at a time. I mean, it's like the stock market that the lowest, right? You bought low and it, it looks like you took them from nowhere. Okay. So that is part of the perception problem. But I don't think greatness can be achieved until you start to see these guys in different situations. Like Sean McVay cannot be considered great until he adjusts and does something different, to your point. When you define great coaches around the NFL, obviously you start with Belichick, you start with Andy Reid right now, and let's go back and see how they've done it, right? And then from like a quarterback standpoint, like what has made Tom Brady great through the years? Oh, they ran an offense that used a fullback a million times. They They ran a spread offense. They ran a two tight end offense. This terminology was the same, but they did a bunch of different things. He had unparalleled success doing all these different things in every situation. Bill Belichick has had pass first teams and run first teams, and he's played zone coverage. He's played man coverage. He's had to adjust to the league, adjusting to him. Andy Reid has had success developing quarterbacks from Donovan McNabb to Alex Smith to all the guys through the Packers and Niners, you know, West Coast system back in the 90s. Like he's done it a million different ways. And then I would throw Kyle Shanahan in that mix, too. We highlighted last year. Here's this outside zone, outside zone, outside zone scheme. And before you know it, he's adding every last wrinkle to it to stay ahead of the game like that shows signs of greatness. And if you're consistently elevating what you're given from a talent standpoint, that's where the great coaches are. So I think that's Bill Belichick. I think that's Andy Reid. I think Kyle Shanahan is in that mix as well, because even when he had C.J. Beathard at quarterback, like the expectation should have been like nothing. And the fact that they were actually a somewhat competitive team with CJ Beathard at quarterback, I think is another testament to Kyle Shanahan in those two years where um, they did not win a ton of games, but it was CJ Beathard and Nick Mullins at quarterback. There is. So I really like the methodology that we use to essentially evaluate coaches, right? Which is yeah. PFF when it began is essentially a player evaluation website, right? It's you grade every single player and every single play, you taught it all up and you figure out how well these guys are actually playing in a way that is beyond simply, let's just look at his highlights and figure out how good he is. Um, 
then there's a sort of missing element to that, which is, well, how do you, so there's very little sort of assumed, um, knowledge to that, right? You don't need to know, um, you know, all this kind of crazy, you don't have to make all these arbitrary uh, decisions as to what's good and what's bad in the same way you would if you're grading like play calling, right? Like what right. is what is a good play call or not in a given situation? Like that's it's almost a completely impossible answer question that you would need to uh, you would need to decide if you're going to start grading like play calls. But what you can do is you sort of say, well, all right, you add up all the PFF grades of the individual players. And then you compare that to the actual production of the unit they're on, whether it's offense or defense. And sometimes they're going to be in lockstep and sometimes there's going to be a big difference between the two. And in theory, the difference between the two is essentially scheme and therefore coaching. So I really like that as a methodology for sort of quantifying the coaching. And then over a long period of time, you start to look at the guys that have consistently made move that needle, right? Guys that have consistently taken the level of the talent, the sum of their talent, and raised it to a different level in terms of the unit's production. I think that's a really good way of measuring coaching. The other way, I think, that's a much more anecdotal level, but I think is worth considering, anytime you have a coach who will basically toss out the window what he wants to do and change it for circumstance or for an individual player, I think is a really good coaching job, even if it is an acute thing that never happens again. So one of the most right. impressive coaching performances I've ever seen was Chan Gailey tossing out his offense and going to run like a like a spread uh, option system with Tyler Thigpen because that's all he was left with at quarterback, right? Yep. It's like, well, I can, I can ask Tyler Thigpen to run like a conventional NFL offense and it will be a joke. Or I can say, right, how close can I make this offense to a college spread system that Tyler Thigpen can run and will be productive? And he did that and it functioned and it looked okay. And Tyler Thigpen was all right in it. That is like a masterstroke. And then, you know, on an individual game level, you get sort of Bill Belichick, the master of this, of specific game plans, right? I'm going to toss out what we normally do and we're going to roll in here and do something you don't see because that's the best way of shutting you down. Yeah, I'll throw like Matt Nagy out there too, right? Like Matt Nagy's first year with the Bears, it's like, wow, we have this grade that said Mitch Trubisky wasn't all that good, but your offense was really productive. Great play calling. Can you keep it going? But like to call him great would take three, four, five years right. of that. I could go back and say 2018 was a great job. I could go back and say Sean McVay's 2017 and 18 coaching was outstanding. You turned Jared Goff into what he should have become from the outset. You turned the, you know, Todd Gurley in the running game to be, you know, made that really efficient, made the pass game really efficient, made it to the Super Bowl, like great job. But like, let's see now. I mean, this, that, that it's, it is the equivalent of saying RG, RG three, 2012, you're great. You're immediately great without seeing how he handled the league adjusting to him. Right. We're in that spot right now with Sean McVay. So I think before we start to mm -hmm. declare great, you have to see how that happens. Now, McVay does have a longer track record of being a good play caller. I think that's fine. But when we're again, when we're, when we're attaching greatness and like I had a coffee with McVay, therefore everything's going to be, you know, awesome. But anything he touches, that was an that was an overreaction from from the NFL, from from a perception standpoint to your original point. Right. I mean, there's clearly a longevity element that's important to this. Like, guys, the NFL is constantly evolving. Like this whole idea of. No, you know, no team that's ever done X has won a Super Stupid. Bowl is yeah. idiotic on its face, right? Because there have been, what, 53 Super Bowls? 
but the game like in 2010 is like a different world to now. So forget 53, you're dealing with it maximum 10, right? So your sample size is already down to single digits, no matter what you're looking at. And that's just an idiotic way of looking at anything. Like the idea that, oh, no, none, no, none of the last 10 things have done whatever. Therefore, that's the way to win. Like 31 teams don't win a Super Bowl every single year. So if you were taking the approach that, well, therefore, 31 teams had the wrong approach this year, we're not doing that. Like you never I, get anywhere. It's ridiculous. So there's there's but well, my point is the, the right. league is constantly changing. Like 2010 is a different world. 1990 is a different world. It, it, everything, it, it constantly evolves. So if you're not, you can't just come in with a system, even if that system dominates year one, the league figures it out. And if you don't change the system to stay ahead of the league, yeah. you die off. And we've seen that with coaches. So you might be, you, in order to be a great coach, you need more than just like the one system that dominates for a year. You need to show me version two and version three. You need to be able to evolve this thing. Otherwise... You had a great idea. You're not a you, you're not the, a great the other coach. the other idiocy in that idea is like if Jimmy Garoppolo hits a, an open post route late in the Super Bowl, like right, is right. the rest of the league copy? Oh, here's the copycat league. You got to get a mediocre quarterback and a really good system, and you got to get a Debo Samuel because the 49ers won the Super Bowl. But Jimmy Jimmy G misses one throw, and all of a sudden, oh, we don't yeah. want to copy that. We want to copy what the Chiefs are doing. Just get yourself a Patrick Mahomes. Wait, I can't copy that. There's only so many of those guys. Like, uh, that is ridiculous. Right. There's like fundamental, yeah, fundamental stylistic differences in teams get separated <laughs> by one play. Right. And if you were taking the logical approach of no team that's done whatever has won a Super Bowl, you would literally be changing to completely diametrically opposed ideas based off one play. I will say there are enough. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I will it's say, if you look at all the Super Bowl winners... I think you can make decisions. This goes back to my whole Jameis versus Mariota debate a few years ago, right? Do you want to be a, a Marcus Mariota, get you on the green type of guy? Those guys don't tend to win Super Bowls, right? Like the Alex Smiths of the world don't tend to go on Super Bowl runs. The volatile guys do like Eli Manning's done it twice. Joe Flacco did it once. Nick Foles did it once. So I do think you can make some kind of macro decision of like, hey, I'm going to get this volatile quarterback who's capable in three and four game stretches and that might increase my odds of winning a championship but it's all ever so slight and it is still based off of like a handful of sample sizes i, I think you can kind of glean some of that information because there's styles uh at the important positions that maybe lends themselves to three and four game samples uh, of going on runs right um yeah I mean, even now that, I mean, the sort of approach to teams is oh, going yeah. both ways in that, right? Like you've got, on the one hand, they're coming into the league like a Josh Allen or a Jordan Love or, a, you know, a Patrick Mahomes even to a degree. Like the number of those guys, the sort of high volatile guys coming into the league and being coveted high in the draft has never been higher. On the other hand, Cam Newton can't find a job. Jameis Winston couldn't get signed for more than a million dollars. Like the guys that are already in the league that have proven volatility and high-end volatility can't buy a starting job so like the <laughs> i don't think the league is any closer to i'd be i'd be more with intrigued with I, those guys on the second wave like hey i don't want my job on the line during your first contract but i might bring you in on the second contract right like i would have taken a shot on a jay cutler and his second deal back in the day just in case you know maybe not completely commit to him the way you know they had 17 different offensive coordinators to try to figure him out but i've also seen the argument yeah, I've also seen the argument now that 
it's pivoting from, well, I want a starter to be my high volatile guy. So yes. I want the backup to be that, right? Like if I, if I'm, if I lose my starter and I got to go through four games with a backup, I want that guy to have, I want that guy to be either all pro right. or disaster or nothing in between. Then I more than I want him to be like, you know, steady Eddie. That's going to give me 45%. Yeah, and again, I think that also depends on what you have on your team. You know, if you've got a good saints team, it's like, Give me steady Eddie, Teddy Bridgewater, <laughs> steady Teddy. Um, anyway, let's let's right. wrap it up. A couple more questions. Uh, Admiral Tiberius says, does size matter with edge rushers or can elite athletic traits make up for a smaller build? Um, it is. This is a good one because I think this is one of our sort of learning learning uh, areas when it comes to PFF grades for college projecting into the NFL, right? It's year one. We've no idea what translates, what doesn't. It's like, let's just look, let's look at all the guys who graded really well and see how good they become. And there's a ton of these small size guys that dominate in college because there's a lot of like plotting useless tackles at the college level, yep. right? Guys that just suck. So if you're 220 pounds and you're fast and you have any kind of skill, you're going to beat these guys and you're going to beat them regularly. And you, depending on your schedule, you can make a season or a career out of that, you get to the NFL level and those guys don't exist anymore. And even the guys that we consider plotting, you know, slow lumbering tackles at the NFL level are like college superstars. So suddenly everything that you beat up on at the college level no longer exists and you need to have a certain baseline of science. Otherwise, you're just going to get manhandled. Um, so I, I think, yes, it and does here, here's what I think it's a little different than just size. Um, this is where I do think scouting and traits and if they're being identified properly are important. If the scouting report says converts speed to power, then I think you have a shot. If it does not, I think you have an uphill battle. So in other words, the NFL tackles must they can they have to get beaten multiple ways because they're good. Right. If you just have speed or you just have an inside move or just a spin move or just a bull rush, you're in trouble. If you have at least two or three different ways to beat them, though, enough speed to challenge the edge, but also enough power to knock them back into the quarterback, right? If I don't have to worry about your your power, I can play you one way. If you don't have a counter move, I can play you one way. So I think it's how you win as well. And the guys that we've seen who are undersized, who graded well in college, your Vic Beasley's of the world. Um, there was a, I just lost the name for a second. There was a lot. There was a guy from UCLA a couple of years ago. I mean, there was a lot of these guys. Um, Eric Stryker. Yeah. Hollins. Hollins he kind of disappeared. Eric Stryker from Oklahoma. Sutton Smith from Northern Illinois. Yeah. Uh, Alex McAllister from Florida. Like these guys all like, kind of graded well and had some burst and had whatever. But they would have no shot at the NFL level because they couldn't win with power. And then even guys who weren't that small, like Chris Harris or say Tack McKinley, uh, Charles Harris and, and yeah, and Tack McKinley, Harris. like they don't win with power a whole lot. So to me, it's about how you win as much as how often or like Emmanuel Ogba only won with like a rip move off the edge. Right. So over time, it's like oh, you're a situational pass rusher. Like you'll get you're like Adrian Claiborne. Right. Um, so I do think it's it's not so much like, hey, you weigh 240. You've got no shot. But if you weigh 240 and you're not creating power, like you're really fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, there's also been this trend of like not even size. So guys like Sutton Smith was like a 
dude's built like me. Yeah. Like he had, <laughs> he, he had no kind of athletic trait working for him. Um, but then you get guys like Shalit Calhoun yeah. or guys that have the length and size, but they're really thin, right? They're long and they're thin and they weigh 240 or whatever. Those guys, there's definitely been a noticeable trend that like they struggle. Shalit Guys are, even if they have length and sort of, you know, size in, in uh, quotation marks. Barkevius. My boy, Mar- Barkevius Mingo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Barkevius. There's a certain degree of needing the bulk if you're like a long. Yeah. And Shalik is, rusher. he's bulked up too. And I think he's, he's had to just to like play rotational snaps in the NFL. You want to uh, wrap it up with these two more? Through both of them. All right. What yeah. lessons? Uh, this is history KSS. History K's. Um, what lessons can Greg Roman take from the Colin Kaepernick experience to avoid Lamar Jackson being found out in similar ways? If you even agree that Kaepernick was found out. This is a really interesting question because I do agree that Kaepernick was found out. Uh, I think that that offense, and like you say, remember it's the same guy, right? Greg Roman essentially created that offense around Colin Kaepernick that was so successful for a while. And Colin Kaepernick's numbers by the end of his career were still really good, but they were not numbers that matched up with PFF's grade. Like his grade had dropped off significantly. He was not playing at the same level, even if the, the box score stats um, would suggest that way. The box score stats and certain, you know, guys whose analysis yes. you might question when it right. comes to quarterback play. Uh, so I think the difference between the two. So one, I don't think they need to, right? I don't think you need to learn lessons from the Kaepernick thing to build things into this offense for Lamar to prevent that happening because I think Lamar is a fundamentally different quarterback in a way that will already prevent that from happening. Kaepernick's issue was he was a so this is generalities, right? Not like you can find plays where this isn't true, but you could same thing is true for everything, right? Generally speaking, Kaepernick never progressed beyond a sort of half field read type of quarterback. And this offense was built around this idea of you read certain concepts, you read high to low, you read triangle here, you read a route concept, and then if that's gone, you can run, right? It wasn't read that, then pivot over here, read this. They never did that with him. And I don't know that he was ever capable of doing it. He certainly didn't show with the level of consistency that Lamar has shown the ability to work through progressions that coherently and that quickly and that efficiently. I think Lamar is already a far more sophisticated passer when it comes to diagnosing coverages and working through a progression to the point where you can't dial in on him the way you could Kaepernick. Like you, once you figured out that this is what they were doing and they never developed a counter to that, you could essentially depending on how that you, by reading the alignment, by reading the route concept, you could crunch down on the thing that Kaepernick wanted to do and leave him with nowhere to go. You can't do that with Lamar anymore because they've already progressed beyond that to the point where they're working full field reads. They're working sophisticated route concepts that challenge different parts of the defense. I don't think the same ability of a defense to take it away yeah, is there. I, I, I agree with a lot of that, Sam. I, I think there's a couple things at play here. In 2012... When that started, it was Colin Kaepernick's doing it. Robert Griffin, the third is doing it. And they just kind of took the league by storm. It was the zone read stuff. And it's like, hey, you guys are changing the math on defending the run. You know, we have we have eight guys in the box. We should be good. But the quarterback takes one of those eight guys out. Therefore, you know, 
we're in trouble. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just think first off the fact that they, the timing of when Kaepernick came into the league helped him. Uh, remember the playoff game against the Packers? Mm-hmm. I mean, they looked like they had, Oh yeah, they were outnumbered every time they looked like they'd never seen anything. And Kaepernick fooled me, man. Like back then, I I always yeah, I got attracted to velocity, right? Like, oh, look at that zip on the ball. And Kaepernick had it. His fastball was a laser. And then what fooled me is the deep crossers that he would throw. He would throw like he would flash enough touch on this one specific throw. And I became like an NFL scout. I was like, man, if I if I see it once or twice, I know he could do it. And he would throw these beautiful deep crossers. Boom. Right in stride. And I'm like, man. He's got velocity. He's got some touch over the middle of the field and he's got this running ability like this should develop. And I think the thing that was found out wasn't so much like the NFL just figured out how to run fit against, you know, Russian quarterbacks a little bit better. But then Kaepernick just never developed as a passer, whether it was the read standpoint, but it was more like the short area accuracy and the touch that never developed. So I think that was the bigger issue. And I think for Lamar, to not be found out, so to speak, he just needs to continue to develop as a passer. And we went back a couple of weeks ago and said, was last year him just progressing because he's played very little quarterback in the grand scheme of things in his life with a playbook and all that stuff? Or will he regress back into what we saw more at Louisville in his first year in Baltimore, which was inaccuracy? The other really interesting element to this, though, that I think is worth at least a second is <clears throat> so I don't think it's possible well, it's possible. I don't think it's likely that teams will figure out Lamar and the Ravens offense the way they did to Kaepernick and the 49ers offense. But I think there's a good argument to be made that a, a an offense that is built to what Kaepernick did well still is, is still a functional, viable, good offense in today's NFL if you wanted to do that. Like part of the problem is that so they figured out what it was. They figured out Kaepernick's limitations, and then that offense never had a chance to develop the counterpunch that we just talked about with, whether it's with pass rushers, um, whether it's with Sean McVay's offense. You know, they, they never had the chance to get to version two, version three, because of obviously of the Kaepernick drama. But I think, you know, Lamar has this offense built around him, and that's enabled him to be an MVP. I, if you built an offense around Kaepernick, I don't think he would become an MVP, but I think you could make him into a very viable NFL quarterback and potentially even a, a pro bowl caliber player, even with the limitations that he has as a passer, as an accurate thrower of the ball. I just think that his skill set is still so good that there's more than enough there for you to still build something very successful. If you embrace that in a way few teams ever have, you know, that's why the Lamar thing is so interesting. So guys support for this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. The Last Dance documentary, we talked about it the other day, it's brought up the ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is LeBron the GOAT? One thing we know for sure, the Lawnmower 3.0 is the GOAT, Sam, when it comes to below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene, and you can now own your own Phil Jackson, your own triangle offense here. Oh, my goodness. You can draw plays. Oh, gosh. Really says that, huh? <laughs> what is happening? You, know, you can own your own triangle offense here, Sam, with the lawnmower 3.0. It tells me you could draw plays in your pubes I see. with the lawnmower 3.0. Wow. <laughs> because huh. 
I I didn't I didn't ex- I didn't anticipate that Me as neither. the direction we were because heading. Because of now. their ceramic blade and skin safe technology, you could also <laughs> Yeah. You can't snag your sack while designing your own triangle offense down under. <laughs> wow, the last dance copy is fantastic. Kudos to the <laughs> Manscaped marketing team. I think they're making the point that they are the best in what they do. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their perfect package 3.0 essentials kit. The kit comes with the new and improved lawnmower 3.0, waterproof, cordless body trimmer, anti-chafing boxers, and a travel bag for you to use when you're done quarantining. You can't wait. Crop preserver and crop reviver are beautifully designed ball deodorant and ball toners. These liquid formulations are the best supporting cast since Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman. The last dance. Remember? The Bulls I, in the I 90s? Yeah, yeah. You remember? Subscribers get a new replacement blade a refill for your lawnmower trimmer. And it's delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Don't gamble on manscaping like MJ before game two of the 93 conference finals. They really went there. Play it safe and use only the best and you get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the promo code PFF at manscaped.com. And your balls are definitely going to thank you. The last dance was a beautiful Usually, yeah. oh yeah. Usually, the manscape reads—they like start off hot out of the gate, right? They they lead with all the fire, and then you know whatever. The rest of it is it's just details. But this one was like a slow burn, and then suddenly yeah. in with the triangle designs. Yeah. Before you know, you're shaving. I didn't expect that. You're shaving plays into your pubes. Is what it's. I was just you. so I was. I'm late to the last dance thing, right? Because Netflix has conditioned me to needing to binge watch things. Yeah. So I didn't want to start it until I knew I You're could finish it. You're not going week it. to week. Right. Well, I didn't want to start watching until I knew I could finish the thing, right? Because I didn't want to be waiting like a week for the ne- the last thing. So anyway, I started watching it now. And I forgot like how hilarious Michael Jordan was. So one of the things that makes him amazing is that he like transcended like the re- the rest of the world. Like Ireland, the UK, like nobody watched NBA basketball in the 80s and 90s. It just wasn't a thing. But everybody yeah. knew Michael Jordan and he was still big. And one of the things that I love, I've got this soft spot for players in any sport that are so unquestionably great and clearly get irritated visibly with the lack of everybody else's greatness, right? It's like, it's not enough to just be great and way better than everybody else. You have like to be, to be visibly pissed off at the fact that everyone else around you sucks. At least That's why he wasn't a good executive or... Right. When he was like this, player coach of the Wizards and all that stuff, right? That's why they a say lot him of these guys, and Gretzky and guys that just can't relate. There's a lot of these guys in various different sports where when they get to the level of managing or you know coaching or whatever it is, they just fundamentally do not understand why you and your inferior crappy human body cannot do better. Like, this is not difficult. Why can't you just do it better than that? That's and, why I think people that think Peyton Manning would just step in as a great executive or coach, I think are are idiots like we've learned through history that the best players certainly don't make the best whatever the best coaches through history are like the role player or the guy that had to work extra hard just to be something whatever it is not that the great ones didn't work hard but there's this level that they just don't always connect with people so i just there's something hilarious about these guys when they're so visibly irritated by everyone else not being as good as they are and one of the things that was so funny was Michael Jordan hating the concept of the triangle offense, not because he thought it was like a worse system, but because it increased the chances that some non-great bull, i.e. not him, 
would have the ball late in the game with a shot they needed to make to win the game. It's like this guy, this crap bag is going to take a shot because of this offense. It should be me and we're going to lose. And I don't want that. I just, I mean, it was, it's, it was just beautiful. I, I just love the concept anytime, regardless of sport, where there's a guy where it's like, look, we can move, we can skip over the fact that I'm great. Everyone knows that, but I am annoyed at how not great you are. Like, it's not enough that I'm better than you, but it irritates me how bad you are compared with me. Elevate your teammates, man. It's, it's also like it's easier for Michael Jordan to go out there and set the example at practice by being the best and like practicing harder or whatever. It's like easier for him to do that and elevate his teammates than it is from like a coaching standpoint or an executive standpoint. Like, how do you motivate people like, oh, I was at my office at 6 a.m. Work harder. Right. It's a lot harder to do than when you're a player. Um, so. Promo code's PFF, 20% off, plus free shipping, manscaped.com. Um, also, Jordan was anti-tanking. So that whole discussion we had a few months back oh, about dude, how... I hated that. Yeah, I remember the whole... Like, but we discussed it. My, my wife said, look, you can't breed losers. You can't tell them to go lose. You can't try to lose on purpose and think you're going to turn your organization around. Like, Jordan agrees with my wife, Kelly. She, you know, they, they both thought, like, we're not breeding losers here. We're going to try to win, um, which I don't completely dismissed for all the touchy feely stuff you talk about with quarterbacks. I'm closer on this end of this, like, Oh, let's just go. zero and 16 and then we'll turn it around. I do think that's easier said than done. Not only would he not let you do that, but he would resent you for it for the rest of your life. If you ever attempted Forever. it while he was around, like he was special level of lunatic. Yeah. Um, all right. No, wrap it up with this one. Right. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, the, the next two questions were good as well, but harking back, do you remember when we did the mailbag episode? There's a there's three yeah. more. Remember when we did the mailbag episode? We used to get some uh, pretty fantastic questions. You know, new ways of changing the game, inventing plays on the fly. You know, whatever that ring of rosy thing was, deep downfield with the pass interference prevention therapy deal, all yeah. kinds of things. Anyway, this one there was one question that got sent to us that kind of reminded me of some of the crazy questions that we got. And I, I was just curious of your take on this particular. Uh, this particular question, Steve. This one is from Ara, Adam Dravetta. Do you think people would be faster or slower if they had toes all the way around their feet instead of just at the front? That was a real question. Actual question sent our way. What do you think? I would say slower. <laughs> it would probably help cutting ability, though, no? Maybe, but I think straight line speed slower. Straight line speed slower, but cutting ability. So you become quicker than fast. Yeah, yeah. Quicker than fast. Be, okay. be more of a space game in the NFL. <laughs> Less deep balls. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what possesses you to think of that, but I like it. I like where his head's at, and I'm willing to throw it on the podcast and answer it because of that. Awesome. Good question. Did you have an answer? <laughs> uh... uh I don't see a way that, yeah, I'm with you and that I don't see a way it would benefit your straight line speed. And I think if you could convince your foot to behave in a way that it would like use the toe when you were cutting, it would work. But what if you like crunch, like it's got the capacity to make some bad things happen too. Like if you cut on the outside of your foot sure. and it crunch some toes in the process, that's, that's not good. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that it might actually be a debilitating design that wouldn't help you in the slightest. And really, the way the human foot is right now is a better better system. Yeah, I think we're well-designed right now. I like our current system. 
Um, do you want to save those other questions for the future? Uh, yeah, okay. So, or were we going to hit them now? No, no, no. I mean, let's bounce now. But we, I mean, there's, we might save them. We might, we might trash them. We'll They'll see what happens. Know. They will never know. Not even going to say who you are. So that's it. That'll do it for the PFF NFL podcast today. We'll be, we'll be back on Monday with some other greatness. And I uh, appreciate everybody tuning in. We're still setting records, Sam, with our listenership right now. People are still listening. Millions and millions of people listening to our show, even in quarantine here. And we appreciate that. So uh, stick with us all off season and into next season. And we'll just uh, talk some football and uh, enjoy it along the way. So thanks to everybody. And uh, yeah, see you guys again on Monday. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did go check out kyler murray and his nfl debut that's my favorite thing about nfl game pass you can go back and watch at any time and if you haven't watched a condensed game yet you have to try it out it's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire nfl game in the fraction of the time it normally takes it's how i'm able to follow all the mvp candidates all the breakout stars and of course your waiver wire pickups all season long to see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.